guys go around and uh, today, so if you don't didn't know, last week right after church, I, uh, I drove to Kentucky. <laughs> like right after church, I got in my car and basically drove 11 and a half hours to Kentucky. It was awesome. Everyone should be in a small vehicle where you can't move or stretch your legs. You wouldn't think I would have a problem <laughs> stretching your legs anywhere. Uh, but, you know, there, there's, there's, there's different issues. Um, so I went down to a conference um, from Answers in Genesis, the Ark Encounter. Uh, I absolutely love it there. It's a fantastic place. If you've never been, I really encourage you to go. Um, they're adding new stuff constantly. Um, and I got there a day early, uh, and I stopped at the Creation Museum, which is one of their other, other uh, uh, exhibits down there. Uh, so there are two separate pieces of property. This was the first one that they built. Uh, and it's, it's just a fantastic place. It, it really is. Um, you wouldn't think, you know, how much, you know, what, what possibly could be there. You will spend an entire day at each location easily. Easily. There's that much to do. There's a lot of stuff for the kids. They have petting zoos on both, on both sides. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a really, really fantastic time. Um, and then so what I did, as I was down there by myself, so uh, during my downtime, I did some exploring of the local area. Um, lots of exploring. I really recommend City Barbecue. Um, I explored there multiple times. Wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. A lot of exploration was needed. Brought some of the exploration home with me. Um, my last day there, I grabbed the manager and I said, can I get about six pounds of this stuff to take home? He was like, yeah. So I did. Mm-mm-mm. My car smelled amazing all the way home. Uh. <coughs> now, while I was there, I got to know some of the, uh, some of the staff members at the hotel uh, working in hospitality industry, as long as I have, I always end up chatting with the chambermaids and the people at the front desk. And one of the things that they told me, I'm not exactly sure why, but they were like, I have to go to, to, uh, to see the Kroger. Now, if you're not sure, it's actually called Kroger's, and it's a grocery store. It's a grocery store, okay? But I had to go see the Kroger. Now, we don't have anything to say because we have the Walmart, Right? And all I can think of when I was there was like, this, is, this was if Wegmans and Walmart had a baby. Like, that's what the place reminded me of. have no idea why I had to go there, but they told me I had to go there, and I wanted to share it with you. So there you go. If you've never been to a Kroger, there it is. Walmart, Wegmans had a baby, and it moved south. That's what, that's what Kroger is. It was a fantastic time. Now, while I was down at the conference, one of my favorite things that happened while I was there, uh, I was at Abzara's Kitchen which is their 1,500-person buffet restaurant. It is, uh, I should say buffet, because I was buffeting my body the entire time I was down there. It was, it was nice. It's just, just, it's just good food. Um, and uh, with the conference, it was just, it was just really, really awesome. Um, so while I was there, I, I was, uh, <clears throat> it was a couple in front of me with a bunch of kids, and they weren't exactly sure what to do. Um, so they were talking about maybe how things work. So I started talking to them about the, about the building. I, of course, I'd been in there several times by that time. Um, so I was telling them how the buffet worked and where they could go and how, you know, they could get the drinks, whatever, where the best place to sit so that you could have lunch and see the ark. You know, it was really, really cool. And, you know, I'm just talking to them. And, and after I'm done, they, they get paid and they, they walked off. And then there's an older couple behind me that tapped me on the shoulder afterwards. And they were like, thank you so much for helping them. I thought, I just want to hear you talk. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, no problem. So we, we started chatting for a couple of minutes. It became very obvious to me that these people were connected to the ark much deeper than what you would have guessed on the surface. They knew too many things. 
I've been connected with Answers in Genesis for a long time. I knew uh, a lot about the ark and the building and the history and some of the details. And they were rattling stuff off that was not something that the average person is going to know. So I just said, you're obviously connected deep, deeper here than, um, than, than what I would guess. So what's, what's your connection to the ark? And so the wife starts laughing and the husband kind of puts his head down. Uh, uh, and I'm like, okay, so what's about to happen? And he says, well, actually, uh, I used to be the chairman of the board for Answers in Genesis Ministries over the whole thing. He was one of the people, if you're not familiar with Answers in Genesis, <coughs> Ken Ham is the name most people know. He was with Ken Ham before Answers in Genesis was Answers in Genesis. He was among one of the founding members. Uh, and I said, well, hi. I just said, can, can I sit down and have lunch with you and your wife? I would love to hear your story. He's like, absolutely. So we, we, we go over and we sit, we sit down, we're looking at, looking at the ark, and he's telling me the story of how the ministry started. Different things that were going on, different struggles they had, and I, I, felt, I felt great because I realized that all ministries have the same problems. They're just different sizes. You know, big ministry has the same problem. It's just a little bigger. Small ministries have the same problem. They just happen to be a little smaller. And it was, it was just awesome to hear, uh, to be able to spend time with people <clears throat> who have been serving God in that capacity for that long. And one of the things that came to my mind is if you want to, if you want to know how dirty you are, stand next to something clean, <laughs> you know, and you think you're going through difficult times until you've heard somebody else's story of a lifetime of ministry and think, man, I want that. Uh, and about 10 minutes into the, into our conversation at lunch, we talked for a couple of hours. Uh, Bodie Hodge showed up. And if you're not familiar with Bodie Hodge, he's Ken Ham's son-in-law. Uh, he does a lot of their videos, writes a lot of a lot of their books, and he sits down. He's got this southern accent, and we're just talking. He's talking about playing guitar and being in a band, and we're just we're they're just they're talking about the ministry. I'm just sitting there eating, going, "This is an unreal, <laughs> just absolutely unreal." Uh, it was such a good time. Uh, made a great connection. We exchanged emails, and it was it was just a really fantastic opportunity to just uh, to just spend time with them and to see. Uh, how things uh, how things happen in different parts of the country. Now the conference was titled "Raising Godly Generations," uh, and it was absolutely wonderful. And it was three days long. They had amazing speakers um, come in. Uh, they had a couple of guys from Africa uh, and, and uh, a lot of local guys. I don't know if you're familiar with Dennis Rainey, um, Family Life uh, programming on the radio. He was there. Uh, Justin Peters was there. We'll, we'll hear a little bit about uh, from them um, uh, in a couple of minutes. But during the course of the weekend. One of the things that I did is I started writing down just things they would say in the midst of their talks. Not, not the titles of their messages, not their messages themselves, but different things they would say, like almost off the cuff while they were, while they were preaching, things that just, just hit me. Uh, and I thought I would share three of those with you this morning and kind of what I, what has been going on in my mind since I have heard those things, because they're pretty profound. Um, so there are three really simple statements, um, and uh, I, hope, uh, I hope this is helpful for us today because I, I think God's doing something very significant in our nation right now, very significant. When you think about the state of the church, when you think about the state of the public schools, the state of our, state of our country, the state of our communities, I can, I can see God moving in, in different ways, um, and I'm really hoping that as the church, we recognize that while it's happening and not after it's done. It's easy to see profound moves of God in the rearview mirror. It's harder to recognize them as they're going through. So um, these are the three things that stuck out to me. And the first one was from Ken Ham, and it was, you're not born salty. You are not born salty. Uh, and it came out of Matthew 5, verse 13. It says, 
Um, <coughs> excuse me. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So a number of years ago, there was a debate that happened in the Southern Baptist Convention at one of their yearly meetings. And the debate was whether or not you should take your kids out of the public school. There was a, there was a huge section of the Southern Baptist Convention that said, you need to pull your kids out of the public school. It's time. And there was another part of the, Southern, uh, of the same convention that said, no, 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 you need to leave the kids there. And the, the side that said you need to keep your kids in the school had a really good argument. If you take the kids out of the school, you take the salt out of the school because we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. So if you take your kids out of school, you, le- you remove the salt. And the other side basically said, we're sending our kids into a place where they're not prepared to fight. They don't know enough. They don't understand enough. They are not capable of winning this argument. And basically, we're sending soldiers into a battle, and they're coming back enemies. Because at that particular time, nine out of ten young people, within six months of graduating high school, would leave the church. That's not a small number. If you think about it, if you were to count children, according to that statistic, one out of ten will remain a Christian. Isn't that frightening? That's absolutely frightening. Now, Franklin Graham said that uh, we're not, we shouldn't surrender the public schools to the government. We should take them back. He said we should train one kid in every class to be an evangelist for Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? Anyone ever heard... The testimony of a kid who tried to share his faith openly in the public school system? How successful do you think it was? Not very successful. Now, the president of the SBC at that particular time, Al Mohler, wrote a book called Exodus. And basically it was, he called for Christians to begin to develop an exit strategy from the public schools. He was saying, it's time to pull your kids out of that cesspool. Now, regardless of what side of the debate you fall on on this, both sides have valid points. They have very valid points. And we need to understand kind of what the issue is here. Uh, And I I actually forgot to bring something with me. Um, I was going to bring a salt shaker up here. Uh, Because the debate within within the, uh, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and other denominations as well is still going on, and it is very intense. People on both sides are really committed to their path. And so the, the question that I think we have to wrestle with is salt. Salt. And this is one of the things Ken Ham brought up. He says, you know, the schools today and our world today is not a safe place for Christians. It's not a safe place for people of faith. Rather, you're a student or a staff member. It's not a safe place to openly share your faith. You can openly share anything else except biblical Christianity. And so the question was... Um, how do we become salty? So if you were to take a salt shaker, just hold up a salt shaker and ask yourself, when that thing was made, when that was created, was it salty? No. It's plastic or glass. It's not salty. How does it become salty? It becomes salty by someone intentionally, on purpose, filling it with salt. Anyone actually uh, accidentally use salt in place of anything else, like sugar? Did you feel as though God was impressing on you that you need to become the salt of the earth? Was it a religious experience for you, or you're like, what? I can go make another cup of coffee. 
You don't use salt unintentionally. And salt, a vessel that holds salt, we're vessels, aren't we? Scripture constantly refers to us as vessels. And we're either going to be filled with him or we're going to be filled with whatever else we come in contact with. But we don't get filled accidentally. We get filled intentionally. And when you think about salt, how do we get salt? Obviously, it rains down from heaven like manna, right? Or is it in the ground and it has to be dug out? It has to be mined. It takes a physical effort to find the salt, pull it out of the ground, and refine it into something that's usable. If you ever look at raw, raw salt, it's got dirt in it. It's not great. So you have to spend time refining it. You have to spend time purifying it so that it can be used in a highly effective manner. There's no different than our faith. Parents, your children and you were not born salty. When you became a Christian, you were given the mantle of to be salt of the earth, but you are not salty yet. When you got saved, did you instantaneously know everything you needed to know about faith, your life, and how to walk it out? Of course you didn't. Most of us got into more trouble after we got saved as we were walking the life up, screwing things up over and over and over again, realizing that's not, I can't do that. What am I going to do? We get into more trouble before we start getting our life in order. Because sometimes God has to make us aware of the issues in our life so that we can clean them up. Sometimes we don't even know a problem's a problem until God confronts us with it. So if we want to be the salt of the earth, we have to intentionally fill ourselves with the salt. We have to intentionally mine out of God's word what the world needs and then fill ourselves up with that so that we have something to give. You ever been in a witnessing situation? Someone asked you a question, you didn't have an answer? That's because you didn't have that peace in you. You had not mined that truth out yet. Now, maybe that's just experience. Maybe that's just time. Maybe it's coming down the road. Maybe it's just something you need to be aware of that you don't have. Either way, irrelevant. At the end of the day, it's not there because we didn't put it into ourselves. So we need to mine that salt so that we have something that we can, that can be used. Neither, new, neither you nor your children have a chance of becoming salty by accident. Walking out the life of a Christian is not going to happen by not learning, by not reading, and by not attending church. Can I say that again? Learning to walk out the life of a Christian is not going to happen when we don't learn, we don't read, and we don't attend church. It's not going to happen by accident. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. As parents... If you want your kids to grow up salty, you have to first mine that salt for yourself so that you have something to offer your children. And then you have to teach your children how to mine it for themselves. It's the passing on to the next generation. Too often, our kids are taught that church and faith are not as important as other pursuits. And I want to give you an example that I know this example is probably going to step on some toes, but I think it's the most profound example that I can give because it affects every single one of us. And I'm going to preface this first. I know that I'm not a parent. 
And I'm constantly told when I talk about raising children that I need to not do it because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to pre- I'll preface everything with that. I think that's a ridiculous argument because anytime I've talked about parenting, I've talked about it from the Bible. So argue with God. But this is the argument that I want to, I want to bring to you in regard to why our kids today are not, and I'm going to say this clearly, not salty. And it's because we've taught them to believe that everything else is more important than their faith. Here's my example. Why is it that public schools have sports games on Sundays? Got pretty quiet. Christian parents should be furious that that happens. Furious that that happens. That is an absolute, undeniable overreach that should never have been allowed. Your child's athletic future is of no value if the future of their faith is not put first. There is nothing that's going to happen to them catching a football on Sunday that is of more value than them understanding that the church and their faith come first. First. Sorry, can't make it today. Got a game. On Sunday? Yep. Why aren't parents telling the coaches, my child will not be there? Because we have church. This is what the child is learning. Anything is acceptable for a reason not to attend church, but almost never is church a reason to not attend something else. Therefore, my faith comes underneath soccer, football, baseball, basketball, volleyball, swimming, anything. When parents say, well, they're playing this sport, it's almost over. I always ask the same question. What's the next sport that is going to be used as an excuse to keep your child out of the church? Pastor, you don't have kids. I don't think you have the right to talk about that. Well, I'm sorry if the overwhelming amount of truth that just landed on your big toe is inconvenient. But at the end of the day, you're going to give your child over to something. And since the Obama years, one of the things that Obama did when he first got into office is he put Arne Duncan in as the, uh, the, the czar of the public schools. In his own statements, he said his desire is to make the school the overwhelming influence in the family life. His desire was to take the influence away from the community, away from other organizations. He was very careful with his words. And make it the school system. No one listened. They've been doing it for 12 years now. No one listened. He wasn't kidding. And he was successful. Today, the government is so bold about taking authority away from parents 
that parents who question the, the school board decisions over curriculum for their children, the attorney general of the United States is now trying to get those people put in the same category as domestic terrorists. If you don't believe me, look it up for yourself. That parents who question the decisions of elected school boards over the curriculum that their kids are reading, the smut they're putting in the libraries, the unbelievably immoral curriculum they're putting in the schools, parents who say, I don't want that for my children, are now being looked at as domestic terrorists. And this is what I'm hearing from parents. I'm going to teach my kids to trust in Jesus. How are you going to do that when they're not at church? when they're not at youth group, when they're not anywhere where they're going to be influenced by the things of God, they're too busy being influenced by the things of the world. We have taught our kids that being salty doesn't matter. Just have fun. You know, you're not young forever. No, but hell's forever. And if nine out of 10 kids are walking away from the church, which one of your kids are you willing to sacrifice to that statistic? I'm begging the parents here. I'm begging the parents online. Make a stand. This is ridiculous that this is happening. And we say nothing. We say nothing. So we sacrifice our kids on the altar of public education. And then we wonder why doctrines like CRT gender delusion are not only accepted but they're force fed to your children for 12 of the first 18 years of their life and we don't know why the kids are walking away from the church we're fooling ourselves your children are not going to be born salty you have as parents you are charged to mine that salt for yourself and teach your kids how to do the same that's not going to happen when church is the least important thing in their life Second thing, like there's more? Yep. That was number one. They get progressively more convicting as we go. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Although this one is a doozy. This one was from Justin Peters. And he said this, and I literally closed my eyes and dropped my head. I was like, I don't know if he realized how profound this was. He said it just, it was in the, in, just off the cuff. You're not sure who, who Justin Peters is. I'll explain to you who he is in a minute. But this is what he said. He says, if you want a God that saves you from hell, but not a God that saves you from sin, you will end up being saved from neither. I went, oh, man. (laughs) Ouch. See, we love the idea of fire insurance. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. What are you doing with your life now? (laughs) Have you confronted the sin in your life? Well, we don't talk about sin. We talk about grace. Oh. Jesus talked about sin A lot. Yes, but we're saved by grace. Okay. So Justin Peters is one is probably the reason I really went to this conference. Um, He's got an amazing ministry. Um, I found him several years ago uh, online, and uh, Justin Peters has cerebral palsy. Um, Now he is we're charismatic church. He is not a charismatic, like very very much not a charismatic. He's actually most well known for his critique of the charismatic church. Now here's the thing. I agree with basically everything he says. When he talks about his, his critique of historic charismania, the way he would, is the way he would put it, I can't argue with him because the stuff he brings up, we've done. 
The charismatic church has, has done a really good job over the last hundred years beating itself up for no reason. Really, really good job. We can get well-known in society, and then all of a sudden, you know, a preacher gets online and starts asking people for $72 million so he can buy a private plane because he doesn't like to fly coach. You know, and then the world goes, ah, uh, yeah, okay, sure, why not? But the, one, the thing I really love about his ministry is that his, his plain and absolutely brilliant teaching about the authority of God's word. Absolutely brilliant teaching. You need to check him out online, Justin Peters. Um, his most popular uh, online um, teaching is called Clouds Without Water. Uh, it's harsh. <laughs> it's really harsh. A couple times if you watch it, you'll go, <clears throat> okay, uh, I have friends that do that, or I did that myself, you know. Um, but it is, it's not just truth. It's laced with a lot of grace. It's laced with a lot of grace. He's, he's just a tremend, tremendous speaker. Um, I, got, I got to talk, I got to spend about 15 or 20 minutes talking with him uh, before he spoke. Uh, I was coming back into the auditorium and he was setting up his, his he had an assistant setting up his table and he just happened to pull in and I'm, I'm walking through and I just kind of turned my head. I'm like, that's Justin Peters. Uh, very humble man. I just walked over and I just said, um, sir, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, and he goes, oh, well, well, well he's a very soft-spoken Southern man. I said, well, thank you very much. I said, I just, I also want to let you know that you have a friend in the charismatic church. And he goes, you have my attention. <laughs> he's like, I, I don't know. I don't meet too many charismatics who are willing to say that out loud. He said, you know, I just, I, I want you to know that you're the reason that I came this year. Uh, Cause I, I appreciate the ministry that you give, give so much. So we talked for a while. Um, we have a chance to bring him up here next year. Um, uh, as we were talking, he had mentioned not in the winter because he has to ride around a little scooter. Not a good idea up here. Um, he's, from the, he's from the Colorado area, and uh, he's mentioned that they get about 70 inches of snow a year. Do we get more than that? <laughs> like, do you mean in one or two days? <laughs> you know. Um, so <laughs> he, had a, he had a good time. So there's where you might be seeing him at some point in time. Um, but during his presentation, he talked about one of the problems in the modern church, especially the modern charismatic church, is this, this desire to seek an experience. I want a Jesus moment. Anyone ever, ever, you need to experience Jesus. You need to experience the power of God. And this has become a mantra in a lot of big churches. Some churches even call worship now a worship experience. So it's you getting something from God. It's no longer about you giving something to God. Talk about a flip, right? Worship is supposed to be an offering not a gift. So he's talking about the danger of that, and that's when he mentioned this. People who want to experience God and go to heaven, but they don't want a God who's going to confront them about their life and their sin. And uh, so we just did a, uh, a series on progressive Christianity, and one of the things we talked about in that movement was their absolute, just complete unwillingness to confront sin in people's lives. See, because if you call something a sin, no matter what it is, then you have to call someone a sinner. If you do this openly, unrepentantly, and, you're, and you're, this is just going to be part of your life, that's a sin. That makes you a sinner. And they don't like that because it's mean. It's really mean when you call someone a sinner. And we're not supposed to be mean. You know what I find to be the most mean? Letting someone spend eternity in hell because you were too worried about confronting them on their sin. To me, that's mean. He made that point, and I went, thanks. Because he's right. Sin is the central tenet of our faith. 
when you think about the central idea of Christianity, it is not experience Jesus and go to heaven. Come to the Jesus theme park, say a prayer at the end, and you will be in heaven. Good. Uh, That's actually not it. The central tenet to the faith is that Jesus sets us free from our sin, and that freedom opens the door of heaven to those who have been set free. That's the central tenet of our faith. Jesus sets us free from sin by his work on the cross. It's not the experience that sets us free. It's the repentance of our sin that sets us free. And people argue that, but there's a problem. And the problem is that we have this thing called the Bible. Now listen to this. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that in times of refreshing uh, may come, excuse me, um, from the presence of the Lord. How about this? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this one, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere. Ladies, that includes you, just in case you're wondering. How about this? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. For the remission of sin. How about this? And the repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And the last one, from that time, Jesus began to preach and, and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, when you start following after an experience, if you're chasing an experience, if, if you're chasing spiritual gifts, if you're chasing the power of God, if you're chasing a holy moment and you're unwilling to chase after righteousness, you fall for what's called the Matthew 7 trap. And this is where a large portion of the church is making its mistake right now. Matthew 7, verses 20, uh, 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not chase after a Jesus experience? Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. The people are asking, didn't we experience the power of God? Did we not have God encounters? Did we not have a holy moment? Did I not, did I not heal that person? Did I not prophesy to that person? Did I not do amazing things in the name of God? And Jesus says, none of that matters. I pray that we get our heads wrapped around this. None of the spiritual experience that so much of the church is chasing makes any difference in our life if we are not willing to chase repentance, righteousness, the forgiveness of our sin. God makes us clean. That means we're not. This is hard. When we want a God who gives, just gives us entrance into heaven, but we don't want a God who wants to confront our sin... We end up being forgiven from neither. We end up getting nothing because we fool ourselves into believing that we can interpret God by our experience. 
Instead, we should be interpreting the word, we should be interpreting our experience through the word of God. And the word of God says, pursue me, pursue righteousness. Then these other things will be added to you. Chase me first and a clean life. Then he can use you in other things. But when you chase it, when you chase the experience, you get it out of order. And then you think you're right with God, but you've never been made right with God. God's power can be used in a lot of different ways. And just because God is using you to bring something great to someone does not mean that you're right with him. I'd like to remind us all that when the disciples were sent out to do miracles, to cast out demons, Judas was one of them. We forget that. God's name has power. His promises have power. But that power is supposed to be to clean us from our sin, not make us feel like we're powerful because we're not. Last one, I'll do this quickly. This is from Dennis Rainey. And it's choose the dollar over the dime. Uh, It was a story he told that I thought was fantastic. And the story basically goes like this. Uh, Little boy's uncle approached him and all the other little kids on his block. And he said, I'm going to give you all a choice. I'm going to give you this shiny dime now, or I'll give you a dollar next week. And he went around to the kids, and he finally came back to his little nephew, and he said, if you made up your mind, I can get this, get this dime now, or I'll give you a dollar next week. The kid's sitting there, and his stomach starts growling. He's thinking, I could get a bag of chips for that. This is obviously a long time ago. He's like, ah, but a dollar, I could get a ball. But I could get, so he took the dime, went and got a bag of chips, woofed him down put it out of his mind. Following weekend, he goes outside and all the rest of the kids are playing with balls. All the other kids have a ball. So he goes up to his uncle and he says, hey, um, can I have that dollar you gave everybody else? His uncle said, uh, no, I gave you a choice to either take the dime then or wait for the dollar. You took the dime. So hope you liked your chips. And so the basic storyline to that is pretty simple. Do we want the moment of satisfaction or are we willing to wait for the real blessing? See, sometimes we've got things in our lives that are shiny and nice and we can get them right now. Or if we wait just a little longer, we have something of more significant value. And I wrote down a few things that made me, that I was thinking of as I was, as I was writing this. If we want to become the salt of the earth, are we choosing the dime of social compromise where we make sure that we never run the risk of offending the world with our faith, where we never talk about godly purity, biblical morality, or for heaven's sake, sin, because we don't want to be mean. And we do it all so that we don't run the risk of letting the truth of God's word make people feel uncomfortable about their sinful lifestyles. Now, we don't go beating people over the head with a two-by-four labeled Bible, right? But that doesn't mean that we have the right to live ungodly lives ourselves, to try to get along with ungodly people. We're supposed to influence them, not the other way around. So are we, are we willing to settle for the dime, or are we going for the dollar? See, the dollar is truth. <clears throat> are we making sure that our own life and our own house is in order, according to the teachings of God's word? 
Are we making the choice to be a living sacrifice? Are we taking the time to mine out the salt of God's word and making sure that we carry enough of it so that we can be of use wherever God takes us? Or are we settling for the dime of a momentary experience of coming into church, having good worship, listening to a good message, and then going home and changing nothing about our lives? That's a dime. Or are we choosing to live our lives as Christians Monday to Sunday? That's the dollar. Are we choosing to invest in the godliness of the next generation by making sure that we are a godly example for our generation? That's the dollar. Or is dad allowed to have football language on Sundays? Dad's using his Buffalo Bills words. It's okay. It's just Sunday. It's just Sunday. Dad's using his golfing language inside. Shouldn't be making exceptions like that for ourselves. Are we concerned about the dime of the experience or the dollar of walking in true repentance and true forgiveness? What are we settling for? Are we settling for an unsalty life? Are we settling for the idea of heaven? We're not willing to confront our sin. Are we settling? That's what I think we really need to understand. As I listened to these guys over this, over this last week, I was just immensely convicted of the level of care they put into so many things. I, got a, I, I, I made a list of things that, that I need to change about me. Just it's like I said in the beginning, if you want to know how dirty you are, stand next to something clean. And you realize, man, you, you thought you had something together, and then you see someone who really has it together. And you realize, I got comfortable. I got comfortable. I can tell you over the last couple of years, I got comfortable. And I realized if I lose my drive, then I can't expect anyone around me to have drive. So I've got to get back to the idea of building for the next rather than just enjoying what's what's in front of us. There's got to be more to it. Make sense? So parents, take a stand. Friends, choose the relationship. And let's make sure we're not getting distracted by a dime and we're making sure that we're hanging out waiting for the dollar. Hope that helps you today. I want to pray for you and see what happens this week. Lord, we ask you, you would be with us during this time. Lord, that as the challenges that are coming for your church, that we meet them head on, that we don't get distracted by momentary issues that have no lasting value, but that we stay on point and we take care of what matters. We take care of the next generation. We take care of the sanctity of our faith. We take care of the importance of growing and understanding and in mining that salt out of your word and filling ourselves with it intentionally, Lord, that we pay attention to the little things And we stop allowing the world around us to take away what matters one piece at a time. We ask for your strength. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your courage to stand rightfully and wisely for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Lord bless you. Have a fantastic week. Don't forget to stop by the table and see our missionary. And we will see you next week. Lord bless you.